Hello and welcome to our very first podcast for Bottled Up. My name is Mayank and I feel honoured and privileged to finally get the ball rolling for season one. We do have an amazing season lined up for you guys with some amazing stories in store that start today. Masashi Fujihara has been a mental health clinician for the past five years and has more recently played an integral role in the mental health space during this pandemic. In our conversation today, we delve into a myriad of different issues, whether it be his experience in the mental health space, his tips and tricks to get through this stage four lockdown, as well as his personal stories and motivations. We really hope you enjoyed this very chill episode. So whether you're on your morning walk, sitting back on your couch or lying down in bed, we hope you enjoy the next hour. So how are you feeling now, mate? Uh, feeling a bit nervous? That's my first podcast, so yeah, you could say that, but uh, no, I'm just, it's, it's good to have, these conversations are important to have, so again, you know, it's just great to be here tonight and to chat with you and to, you know, hopefully provide a little bit of insight into personal experiences and also um, what lies ahead for us in 2020. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say that 2020 is pretty much a write-off for us, um, but it's weird how it's felt so long yet it's gone so quickly yeah it like, certainly felt long i mean we're only in august um and at the same time we're kind of really hoping for this year to end so we can see what on earth is going to happen in 2021 so <laughs> oh god yeah it's been a long time coming hasn't it yeah it has and you know i must admit as well i'm i'm a bit nervous as like yourself this is my first podcast and you know by my own admission i definitely am not the quality of joe rogan so it, it's going to be very interesting to see how the next 45 minutes to an hour goes so um, but obviously, this isn't the first time we've met Masashi because we've actually met uh, playing uh, old boys high school cricket for Halebury College. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, it was a very interesting season. Um, yourself and Ujwa both came came along towards the end of the season. It was really great to have you both, especially as young, old Haleburians. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty f- a phenomenal end of the season. Um, we weren't expecting to play a semi-final and then we got a call up at the 11th hour and... Um, I mean, not only did we get, take part, we nearly won it to to nearly knocked off the eventual premiers. So it was pretty interesting. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. And as to how I guess close we actually got, it was just a couple of catches we put down. And you know, we don't, we don't want to get too philosophical about it. But you know, you win some, you lose some. But uh, uh, you know, you're probably thinking about it. We shouldn't have started this podcast with a bad ending like that. So, <laughs> um, but you and I also actually have a mutual. Well, I wouldn't really call him mutual friend, more connection, because he's your blood relative. Um, because, but I actually went to school with one of your many brothers and sisters, and that was your younger brother Yoshi. Oh, is that my brother? Yeah. Look, last time I checked, it was um, the the Fujihara name isn't that common. No, yeah, <laughs> true. I can't, I can't deny it, can I? No. No, no, you can't. Um, interestingly, actually, I was going to mention this before, but uh, in year seven in high school, Yoshi and I were in the same uh, hockey team, and. Just for context for our audience to understand, pretty much every single Fujihara that went to Haleybury was pretty much considered an absolute, an athletic beast. And, you know, Yoshi had the body of an 18-year-old kid in year seven, and I was far from that. And <laughs> I remember Yoshi tried to cross the ball into me, and it ricocheted off a guy's stick and hit me in the face. And unfortunately, I lost an adult tooth because of that, and I'm still waiting payment from him, mate. You can ask for the medical bill at the five-year reunion. Yeah, well, it's, uh, well, now that I think of it, it's actually probably a conversation that he needs to have with my dad, because <laughs> <laughs> not me. Oh, <laughs> <sighs> uh, God. But, but the reason we decided to get you on, and I guess why this was a little last minute, was because, you know, as we've mentioned multiple times, you are very well versed in the mental health space, particularly during this environment, because you've obviously worked within the quarantine re- uh, requirements for return travellers, which is a very interesting initiative with the, the hotels that people have to stay in. And um, you've also started a new role within the DHHS. What was that new role again? Yeah, so the uh, did the hotel, just a bit of background, did the hotel program, which started March 30. Um, my last day in that program was July 11, which was just after Daniel Andrews announced that the flights were going to stop coming in from overseas into Victoria or being diverted to other states. Uh, so I had a few weeks off, recharged, because I'd sort of worked full-time hours for those four month, that four-month period. And um, I have just started this week, uh, just had a couple of days induction to, um, to work directly for the department, um, to be employed by the department as a public health officer, um, which again is in the COVID rapid response. Um, so the case outbreak and management team. So my division is doing existing contacts. So just following up day to day with those who are considered close contacts and just checking in and seeing how they're going, both 
medically, socially, and their welfare as well. So. Oh, nice. Is that, is that over the phone or is that in person or? Yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's it is a, it, although it's a forward facing role, it is phone based. Mm, okay. So a lot of the time we'll just be checking in. Uh, it's just the business hours, Monday to Friday role for myself. Um, yeah, so just sort of just mostly risk stratification. Um, Again, really just checking in on welfare day to day. And, um, and when you mean, when you say risk gratification, is that just like escalating stuff or? Yeah, so I mean, if, the, you know, about escalating risk concerns if there are any, whether, again, mm, whether okay. that's medically, socially, or from a welfare point of view, making on, 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 on referrals to other services, a sort of key stakeholder engagement okay. as well um, across the board within the state. So, Obviously, as challenging as the time it is right now for Victoria um, and certainly metropolitan uh, Melbourne, uh, for myself personally, it's a it's it's an exciting new challenge and venture to be a part of. So we'll see. Mm. Hopefully, it doesn't go for too long for the state, yeah. but um, it'll be certainly an interesting sort of a career um, opportunity for myself. Yeah, it will be interesting. And and look, that's really awesome, man. And mad respect for you for everything you're doing because people are facing tough times at the moment. We will all need support, and it's very high stress and. I can't wait to delve into this a little bit more a little later on. Um, but there's a lot of things to unpack here in your story, I feel, um, whether it be your life during this lockdown or you know, whether it be looking at the incredible impact you've already made during this time. Um, but before we get into that, I was kind of hoping to, I guess, lay the groundwork for people to understand you a little bit more. Because you know, during our coffee catch-up um, before this, it wasn't just a linear path just to get to this stage of your life. And I was hoping you could take us on that journey a little bit tonight because, and I'll, I'll probably give you the floor here for a couple of minutes. And I guess, could you take us through what your relationship with mental health was like during high school? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I mean, back, I mean, compared to what we understand, uh, certainly what I feel is a lot better now in 2020s compared to the the late 90s and the early 2000s, um, my experience would have been quintessentially a lot like other young, young boys, young, young young men um, and young adults. So there were certainly aspects of my childhood and family times that I, I probably didn't quite understand, especially as, especially as a youth. And I, I certainly, certainly felt like, you know, in terms of reaching out and speaking to someone about that, I, I did feel that that was fairly limited um, back, in, back in that period of time compared to what, what we now know with awareness and insight now into mental health. So... I certainly experienced some challenges, um, <laughs> certainly around mood, um, the highs and lows of mood, also those sort of feelings of, of you know, happiness and what made me happy. And I certainly remember around year nine feeling like I didn't know anything, and I was, it was almost like a, it was almost like an anxiety sort of issue that sort of cropped up, and I was really concerned, and almost to the point where I was, yeah, really challenged by some of the things that were going on in my life. And going into you know them finishing school, that was certainly another challenging period of time. You know, we all we all probably felt that that we were, you know, when you're at school, you're really closely supported, and people will check on you when when you got to finish your homework. And then you go to university, and you're just one number. And if you don't do your work, that's fine. You're paying the fees. Doesn't matter. You'll fail. That's it. So a lot of those experiences in transitioning to adulthood, especially for especially for us men, it's um it can be really daunting and you know if we don't understand that in the lead up to it once we hit 18 once we finish school and go on to either university to, you know TAFE other tertiary studies or go straight into the workforce or whatever life throws at us um yeah it can be really confronting and challenging so my experience you know, I, I certainly understand a lot better now, having worked in mental health, about my own my own childhood, my own youth time, and even my early adult years. That as a twenty nine year old, I have a much better grasp on and can sort of reflect on a lot better. And you know, things I face now, as a you know, as a nearly thirty year old next year, um, I'm probably better. I'm much better equipped at handling some of those pressures and challenges and what I face. So yeah, it's been a, it's been quite a journey from the earlier years that's for sure yeah definitely and one of the ideas you touched on there is actually something that Sonny and I talk about all the time and it's the it's this relationship between responsibilities and stresses and I guess freedom and that relationship that has with mental health and I get I know it's a bit confusing but here's what I mean by that um 
when you're younger, your freedoms far outweigh your stresses and responsibilities. And you have the freedom in the world to, I guess, do whatever you want. But as you get older, it's it's like one of those old-fashioned weighing scales where as you get older, your freedoms become less and less, but it's also compensated by stress and responsibility. I mean, for example, a prime example of that is, you know, when you transition from high school to university and from university to a full-time job, there's a lot more pressure and much more responsibility that people have to take on. And that in turn affects mental health. Yeah, there's definitely some, there's definitely some symmetry there. I mean, you, you think about how we, you know, what, what we might understand, um, especially from a viewpoint around, um, you know, as I was saying before, that, that transition, you're, you're, it's so closely monitored when you're at school, you know, you, you're told when to have your classes. You know, you go to university, some of the lectures are online. You know, it, it's about being self-reliant. It's about being an autonomous adult and when you're at when you're at school when you're in your school years um or even up to before you turn 18 a lot of that is in charge someone else is that responsibility or they're they're watching over you i mean you you can't drive till you're 18 you can't vote till you're 18 and then it's like the pressure valve is is let off and then that's where it is are you self-reliant by that point and i had to say from a personal perspective i wasn't i mean we i've been reliably informed that us us men we don't grow up till we're 25 and look I'm 29 still growing <laughs> up so you know that's uh, that's the really challenging period is 18 really 18 to 25 or 16 to 25 because not only uh, are you changing physically you're changing mentally you change your life changes mm. so do you adapt to that is is the big test exactly and I feel like based on what you've said that through your education and maturing you're much mentally stronger now than what you were back in your teenage years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without question, without without an absolute doubt. And I mean, that comes with experience and age anyway. So I would say most 18-year-olds are very different at 28 and, um, you know, most 15-year-olds are different at 25. So sure, that comes with experience, but I've been very, I've been very fortunate because I've gone on in, and worked in, in the field in mental health over the last five years. So, I, I mean, would I have had the same tutelage without that? Maybe not, probably not, most likely not. So... Yeah, it's. I would. A lot of it is is to come down with experience, and you look back at things with the beauty of hindsight, and you're like, you know what, I would have probably faced that or or, or gone about that differently. So you know, we all we all make mistakes. Mm, yeah, and and what would you have done differently? Was there anything that you would have done differently or changed this time around? Oh, so many different things. Um, it's such an open-ended question, though, isn't it? Like you could, you know, you could, you know, we could be talking about this now, and then in ten years' time again, ask ourselves the same question. So, it's not that I don't want to answer the question about what I would have done differently, but I always like to think that w- what will I do now instead? Because I have that benefit of hindsight, I could have, e- I could easily answer the question and say, "Oh, I would, ne- I wouldn't have taken a gap year; I would have gone straight into university." And, but that's. The problem with that mentality, or maybe not problem, but the challenge with that mentality is that when will you ever not look back and be like, oh, hey, I could have played this differently, and you will forever be thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, every time, every decision, it's a butterfly effect. So I always feel like, especially with mistakes, and boy, have I made enough in my life already, how the mark of that and what I was trying to say before is, how how do you respond now to those things? What have you learned from that mistake? If you keep repeating mm. it, that's the yeah. what we understand as a definition of insanity. So I certainly don't want to be insane. Uh, don't worry, mate. You know you're not you're not insane. You're doing incredible things at the moment, so you should be very Thank proud you. of that. So yeah. Um, so when you were in high school, I guess I have a couple of questions. During your low points, how did you find hope, and where did you draw your strength from? Because in year 12 at the moment, for those year 12s in, in lockdown, it's certainly not mm. going to be helping their mentality as, you know, I have passed and you and I have both passed through year 12 and VC exams are pretty much seen as the be all and end all. And it can be really stressful. And, and number two, I guess, how does your experience of dealing with your mental health help you in working through those emotions? So I might address that the, the last part first and then go back to t- talking specifically about school and year 12. <laughs> yeah, so I apologise to you and the audience. I feel like I'm a pitcher and I'm throwing multiple curveballs at you. So I'll whack him out of the park. 
Ha <laughs> <laughs> um, So, so the, the the first part about how you know what um, what supports were back then that and that was probably what I was saying at the very start of this podcast was that there weren't many. There were, you know there was access to a school counselor, um, but you know we talk about and I'm not big on the phrase stigma, but certainly our understanding back in the late late nineties and two thousands about mental health. You know what I know now, having worked in the field, what's actually available. I would I would hazard a guess a lot of a lot of people, um, a lot of people that don't have maybe the either the health literacy or the mental health literacy or haven't accessed services before have absolutely no idea, and that might be a barrier to entry, a barrier to accessing care. Is I don't know what is out there. Mm. You know now that you know you look at schools now, you look at what I'm sure what Haley would have as a model for well-being. And um, school welfare, student welfare, is their their access to psychologists, counsellors, career counsellors. Um, you know, you know, you know the realms of looking out for child protection, looking out for family violence, and family support services. Um, you know, I remember back when I was at school, there was certainly an access to the, the counsellor. Um, but a p- other sort of referral pathways out, outside of that, I, I couldn't quite tell you accurately what was out there. Um, it wasn't until later in life where I sort of actually engaged in aspects of talk therapy or, or, or even aspects of, um, you know, debriefing and um, supervision and clinical supervision. Um, did I sort of have a great, great much better grasp of um, reflection? So, so on to your other point about 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 schools, and again, I again I have this benefit of hindsight, you know, having finished school over ten years ago now. Um, you know, we all I'm not gonna I can still recall those that, that, those feelings of uh, have I done enough to get into university? Have I, you know, will I do well enough to do to finish school? And if I can address the audience that you have that's either coming into that period about to start university or going through university, is that. Um, your results as an eighteen-year-old don't define don't don't define you forever. I've known people that didn't get it who didn't get into medicine that are now working as uh, working as um, as interns and working as doctors. So um, the society and the community society puts a huge emphasis on how well you do at school, and I would say do as best as you can, work as hard as you, as possible, but. Once you once you've hit university, once you've got your foot in the door to tertiary or, or other opportunities, you know my you know my that you know the, the score I got could have got me into law or or otherwise, and I chose something that you know could have and if I gotten into the low 60s, 70s, I would have been able to qualify for. So, uh, my message to oh, hello, pup. my message to my message to the to those who are who are coming into arguably the toughest year of your schooling career, let alone in the middle of a global pandemic, is to is to is to enjoy it and embrace it. And I say that because, you know, in, in, you go into, the, in, you know, you're finishing school next year. Um, it's almost like you've been doing a free trial for 18 years and then you start paying for it is the, <laughs> is the joke, the adage I, I hear a lot. So it's, it, it'll ramp, it'll, it'll ramp up in the future, but just do the best that you can work hard. If you, if you can say at the end of the day that you worked hard, even if your results don't reflect it, well, you can at least say that you worked hard. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, when I was in school, I thought my ATAR was the number one thing that defined me and defined my mindset and also defined my worth. It, it can cause a lot of undue stress and anxiety, particularly now that, you know, the fact that schools or university students, you know, can't share that stress with their mates. And, and I love that about school. That was one of my best memories, I guess, going in before an exam and sharing that stress. And it's kind of a coping mechanism for some people where, you know, they sort of share that burden with others. And it's actually it's a funny story between Ujwal and I actually back in year 11. We, we actually had a bet on who would get lower in our chemistry exam, which was a bit concerning. <laughs> um, but it sort of provides, I guess, a neat little segue into this whole idea of mental health stigma and not sharing those emotions with other, with other people. Because I feel it's so prevalent, especially within males, and of course some females as well, where you know stigma and this fear of this perception of being weak is often seen as a barrier. Um, I, before I get into that more broadly, 
I'd like to certainly say that we have gotten better, as I said, from the 90s to the early 2000s to 2020. We have Definitely, yeah. There's not a day that goes by where it's some way or shape or form our lives, we, we either talk about mental health, it's in the media, it, and, and for me, that's fantastic. I mean, I don't want to live in a world where it's not because... We're told, you know, if you don't exercise, you'll get, you'll get overweight. You'll have, you could have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all these things. Um, you know, the thing that we don't often tell, talk about, especially with depression, is that the it's the the most awful result of that could be something like suicide or so, or self harm or or wanting to die and then, as I said, suicide. Mm-hmm. So that that for me would be the stigma is that it's it's not it's there's no equity. I wouldn't say quality, but there's no equity in, in the stakes there when it comes to to mental health versus physical health. Um, so why do I believe that exists? Because it's the stigma is because we don't feel comfortable enough yet to have that conversation as easy as it is to talk about the weather or to talk about our favourite sports team or talk about our hobbies and passions. You know, I, I know this it might sound a bit pervasive or perverse, but Sometimes I really enjoy going out for a coffee with a friend or a family member and just talking about our mental health. Um, whether that can be in the most broadest terms you want or the, in the most depth terms you want, but um, <clears throat> we are getting better, which is, is a positive sign, um, pardon the pun, in this culture, in this global pandemic. But, um, <clears throat> you know, it's the conversations. That's why this, the work, you know, what we're talking about tonight, what, what the fact that we are talking about this tonight is so crucial and, and vital without it, you know. But, but why do you think there's a stigma? I mean, what is it about mental health that creates that weakness? Or why do you think people have that perception? Because it's embarrassing. It's, 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 it's shameful. Just like when, you know, someone's overweight and a bit conscious about their weight, and that's a psychological component, by the way, um, you know, society has often told us, I mean, you know, you often still hear, which is really disheartening, we tell young boys not to cry, but girls cry. Not only is that inherently quite sexist, you know, crying, oh, there's nothing, for me personally, there's nothing more therapeutic than having a good cry um, because it shows emotion and it doesn't, as quite literally the title of your podcast, it doesn't bottle it up. So why, why does that happen? Because, you know, we're still, there are still ways where we can be better. We can be better educated. We can be better informed. It's about having the conversations. We're not quite yet widely having this, these conversations, as I said, just like we're talking about the weather. We yeah, talk about definitely. the weather indiscriminately. Whenever it's really uncomfortable, awkward, or someone, or you, or you just small talk, you're like, oh, it's a nice day today. That's what we do. Now, how are you feeling today? Are you feeling a bit low? Are you feeling up and about? Like it rolls off the tongue. For me, like now, it's entrenched in my psyche. It's something that, you know, where applicable and where someone else might want to engage me in that conversation, I'll be happy to have that because, yeah. But I'm not, I'm not everyone and, not, and certainly no one else is me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's why, why it might be a stigma. Um, but we have to ask all ourselves that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's kind of the inherent problem here because... Talking about mental health in today's society, um, it requires a cultural shift, uh, which I guess is one of the drawbacks of this initiative where we know we're not going to change the world in one night. It's going to take some time. But the more we talk about it, I guess the more we're going to try and normalize it in a sense. And, you know, I always talk about this with with Sunny and Ujwal. And it's something I've been, I guess I've been thinking a lot over the past couple of days. And it's this. If you take 10 people and you put them into a room and you ask them, you know, when was the last time you had a cold or flu? People would be more than happy to share their symptoms and I guess when they got it and how they got it. Um, but when it comes to mental health, that narrative sort of changes. And if you were to ask those 10 people, there would be that reluctance. And I, I feel like that narrative changes because with a cold or flu, because it's an external factor that dictates whether you have a cold or don't, because you know, you can get it from someone else or you can get it from a family member or whatever. But when it comes to mental health, because it's intrinsically driven, there's an automatic association of weakness. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the fact when it comes to physical ailments, you can quite literally see it. You can see objectively uh, and subjectively 
a physical ailment. If someone's got a cold, they've got a runny nose, they've got a cough, they've got a sore throat, they'll tell you about it, you'll know. Mental health, you might have absolutely no idea someone is really struggling. They might, you know, look at some of the, some of the, you know, I wouldn't say celebrities, but people of influence in the past that you had no idea were struggling and died by suicide. I always think about Robin Williams' death. Supposed to be the happiest man in the world, and yet even he wasn't safe from that. It doesn't discriminate. We talk a lot about, you know, in 2020 about discrimination and, and causes to get around. Mental, mental health, mental illness doesn't discriminate. Mm. And the fact that you could present as being quite affable and effectively really pleasant and polite and excitable and, and all these things, and yet you could be hiding behind that something quite sinister and dark. If you, didn't, if you weren't trained to look for it or you didn't even think about it, you'd have no idea. So that, that's, that's the part that is, is, is most pressing. Um, and it's complex. It's really complex. Yeah, it's definitely complex. And, yeah. you know, just to add to that, it's just a shame that it's kind of seen in that vein now. And it kind of links me to this next portion of your life um, where mental well-being became ever more important for you because I guess you realise that it's actually affected the people around you as well. Yes, so the, 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 the event that you're referencing is um, in my last year of university, um, one of my close friends at the time, she took her life by suicide. Uh, and I certainly remember the impact on her family, her, her fiancé, um, her friends around her like myself. And the impact it had on me, um, I still feel to this day. Um, and that was nearly, what, eight, eight? seven, eight years ago now. Um, <clears throat> and the, the when I say impact, I mean, I, I ended up taking the rest of the year off and didn't graduate until the following year and finished my studies. Um, it quite literally took me on the path down to mental health because at the time when I came back from that from that break, I we were choosing what we wanted to do in terms of uh, not only electives but potentially career paths. Um, within the field and the profession and I saw mental health on there and I had no hesitation almost in autopilot of selecting mental health because that's something that you know I wanted to oh I've always had this adage of wanting to do it do it for those who didn't make it um, but also again to even understand my own childhood and upbringing and and um, experiences with mental health as well so um, unfortunately both professionally and personally there have been far too many deaths by suicide that I would care to admit and care to, to wish it occurred. Um, and that's why for me this, this, this um, affinity that I'll have with the mental health space, as you called it, um, I'll always have it. Whether, no matter what I do in work, professionally, personally, that'll be something that is, is old. You know, it's always a cliche talking about being passionate about something, but... Um, it stays with me because, you know, as I said, those who doing it for those who didn't make it. That's why I get out of it every single day. Um, so it, although it's a painful driver, it's a driver nonetheless, and it yeah. sort of keeps me there and about. So, yeah. Yeah, what you said just then was, was pretty intense um, because I, I, can't, I can kind of identify with you in, in some sense because, you know, earlier this year I lost my mate as well. And, you know, you go through a cycle of emotions and, you know, you just – it's, it's hard. It's definitely hard. And I'm truly sorry that you had to experience that. Um, and I guess it kind of links to that whole thing about this whole driver, because, you know, in order for us to stop, I guess, that being a driver for us, we have to try and, I guess, try and resolve the problem as best we can at the root cause. And one of the ways we can do that is showing people the pathway on how to get help. So I feel like one of your big messages from this is on showing people how to get help. So could you tell us, mate, what's the pathway? You know, and we're, to we're told a lot in the media, we're told Beyond Blue and Lifeline that it's about talking to people. So I'm certainly big on that. Um, where I would say it differentiates, though, um, where I believe there's an important um, difference in talking to someone is that, and I'll, I'll love to use the analogy about getting a haircut, um, or getting any sort of specialist work done is that I don't cut my own hair. I go and get I go to someone else and they they and they cut my hair. So I'm certainly big on if people can afford it, um, and it can be afforded through a mental health care plan. Um, 
speaking to someone um, who's a professional. And the reason why that is, and there's a few reasons for why this is, the one of the big ones, you can talk to friends and family and that is always a great starting point because they might give you similar guidance and advice, you feel comfortable talking to them. But why I also believe that it's important to speak to more of a professional is that they are, they are unbiased. They, they don't have a horse in the race, besides obviously wanting you to do well and to, and to have that sort of mental wellness. Um, but also can put, a, put challenges on friends and family where they, they really want to help you, but they don't know how to. They really want to help you, but they feel that they're, they're actually not helping because they're taking in their unconscious bias. So in terms of mapping out, uh, uh, you know, sort of, sort of models of care or, or how to access care, the real, the real great one to do is just go to your GP. And when I say just go to your GP, go to your GP and at the moment, or a telehealth consult if that's what you feel comfortable with and say, hey, I'm having some issues, um, could be, for example, with depression or depressive symptoms or with anxiety symptoms or anxiety. It could be with mood disorder or, or mood issues or, 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 or things more existence, even things around personality as well. Um, could be with addictions, which certainly, which certainly pops up. But, um, yeah, so GP is a great port of call because GP is a, is a specialist. So you can mm. go to the GP and say, hey, I'd like to see someone. Who, what would you recommend? You could talk about some of your symptoms to the GP and the GP could say, okay, I think it'd be great if you go see a psychologist. So he makes, he or she, it's a, he could be he or she, makes a referral to go see a psychologist and that's rebated through Medicare. You get 10 sessions. At the moment with, um, with, the, with coronavirus, you can actually get 20 sessions, which makes it which makes it a lot easier for people to access because if you think about it, 10 sessions is less than once a month. Mm, mm. So it runs out. Some people need fortnightly sessions. Some people go once a week. So it's re- I feel that's a real great initiative to get double the sessions. Um, but you could go see a counsellor because you might want to just speak to someone more loosely, more broadly mm. about just life in general. Yeah, exactly. And one of my mates with whom I work with at the moment actually yep. utilized our university counseling service down at Monash University Brilliant. just to talk through our own issues, which was really good. And she said just to get things off her chest was an, was an amazing experience within itself. And it kind of like got reminded me as well, because you also saw the psychologist uh, when you were going through your own stuff. I'm assuming that also would have been a very cathartic experience for you as well. Oh, without a, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, so even but quite literally, you... you you know, even in my, in supervision now, you know, talking, debriefing, and talking through complex cases, challenges, um, work life balance. That's it's so crucial. It's a bit like you know, you're going to the gym, and that's great, but you you want that additional help. So you get, you grab a personal trainer, and they can work on with you things more specifically. So. Let's just say, for example, you're going to use the analogy of, you know, we're going to work on strengthening your legs. So you, you, in the same time, that's why you go see the psychologist to talk about your mood and, you know, with, you know, problems with the depressive thoughts. So enrolling other people in your cause, which is your own mental well, well-being and welfare. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, as I said, like this, the conversation is just as easy as these ones. It, it's so, it's so important. It's great to get things off your chest because a problem, it's a problem halved at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, yeah. So anyone out there that's thinking about it, I, I just you have nothing to lose. But the first step, go to the GP. The GP is your first port of call for anything because they can make the ref- necessary referrals on, um, in any way, shape, or form. Mm. And that can be yeah for anyone. Yeah, exactly. And just to add to that as well, I mean, having conversations with counselors is great and. As an addition to that, I feel like just getting out into nature and getting outdoors is also so important. And I guess as a subset of that, just doing what you like and doing what you enjoy, it's so important. So I guess, do you feel that doing stuff like this can help us get through this lockdown period? Oh, I mean, as I said, getting outdoors is, is so crucial. But you know, to those, to those out there that's not their thing, then please do your, please do your thing, whether that's you know, reading, a, reading a book... Um, you know, if it's art, if it's music, whatever it might be, um, whatever you're passionate about, fill your time with that. You know, we've got a lot of downtime at the moment outside of work. There are people, you know, that are listening at the moment that are, that have lost their jobs or aren't working or are in insecure work. Um, 
again, my, and I've had a few messages tonight, but another message to those, you know, um, to those people is get that resume sorted, start writing some cover letters, have a look around, think about lateral career movements, think about going back and doing some additional study or doing further study if that's what could be required. There's going to be a lot of industries that are really looking for work over the next couple of years. So the the big thing I'm trying to say about this and about this period is that as challenging and as difficult as it has been for all of us, there's no one that hasn't been affected by this global pandemic, both here in Victoria, around Australia and across the world. Is there a way of turning this into some sense of optimism or an opportunity? I mean, for lots of different things, this is this is an opportunity to reset, to do things differently, to to have that to have that quiet reflection about your life and whether you're happy with where you're at or whether you want to do more and do you have some goals that you've been putting off? Find something. I might I I you know I challenge your audience over the next you know six five to six months for the rest of the year. Find something that fuels your drive. It might be it might be work related. It could be personally, it could be professionally, it could be reconnecting with people over Zoom, over message, because things will get back to whatever pre-life COVID mm. normal is. Yeah. But yeah, we will get through yeah, this. Yeah, and, and we will get yeah. through this. And, and I know it's hard at the moment. You know, when we're we're seeing all we're seeing in the news is a rise in cases, and we're we're seeing all this stuff, and we're going into back into lockdown. We're going into stage four, and it's. It's it's hard. It's definitely hard. But you know there is light light at the end of the tunnel, and we will get through this at at, at some stage. Um, and it's about keeping that positive mindset. And I know it's hard, but you know that's what we have to do in this in this time. Um, and, and I guess on that topic, it's really affecting everyone's mental health. Um, and I was actually reading the other day that you know Beyond Blue and Lifeline had received a massive uptick in calls, which is which is great, and it's also bad as well. I mean, it's great in the sense that you know people are reaching out and asking for help and seeking help, but it's it's not that good in, in in terms of you know that they need to get help, which is which is I guess the bad side if that makes sense. So so your role is very much very well versed in the mental health space, and I, I was wondering if you could tell us in relation to your role that you played in the hotel quarantine where people had to come back for two weeks. What was life like for them and your experiences? Because you know if if you extrapolate that amount of time that those people spent in those hotels. And um, I, I by no means am making a like-for-like comparison yet because obviously they're very different, but it's probably the closest comparison that we can make. What was it like, I guess, giving that advice? And could you tell us a bit about that experience a little bit more? It's quite similar an experience uh, across my five-year career that I, I haven't experienced before. Now, the reason I say that is that I've worked with a lot of people over the years, clients, patients, consumers um, of mental health services that that have had that past experience with mental health. And this this time I was dealing at times, not always, but at times with people that had never had any sort of mental health issues, mental health concerns. And you relate it back to what's going on at the moment. You have people that have never had issues with their mental health before. You know, it's based on the situation. That's why that we talk about, oh, there's a diagnosis in, in psychiatry and psychology around a situational crisis where you become in a crisis because of your situation. So that that was that was quite remarkable because, again, I, I mostly work with people that had that mental health literacy, had health literacy, and had access to services before. And I was talking to people that didn't even know, couldn't articulate what they were experiencing. They, they, they weren't aware that what they were experiencing were acute symptoms consistent with depression, with anxiety or claustrophobia. So you know, part, of my, part of my role was to facilitate counselling in a way that was, um, that was best suited to their needs. And, and you know, if required, linking them with the services after they left the hotel. And, that, and that's the point is that after COVID-19, after this global pandemic, there'll be people that will require ongoing interventions or, or support or treatment. And, and we're, we're taught in mental health early doors as graduates that it's, it's, it's lifelong recovery, um, whether that's addiction or mental health specifically. So, you know, it, that's why signs that early interventions can, can avoid making diagnoses. So my experience in the quarantine programs from March through to July was... Like nothing I've ever experienced before. Um, um, so I, yeah, it was just it was such a vast, it's just a vastly in, interchangeable experience mm. too. 
Um, it was changing rapidly at the time. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that people experienced acute symptoms of anxiety, depression, and claustrophobia. And you were giving them advice over the phone, but it would have been so difficult giving them that advice because it must have been so hard to, in a sense, that you couldn't really, I guess, relate to them or you couldn't really understand their position. It's important as well to clarify that there was some face-to-face work, um, especially when the okay, yeah, gotcha. yep. situation demanded it, um, whether there was a high, a heightened levels of acuity, but especially when I need to do some face-to-face assessments. Obviously, I was wearing the necessary PPE and... Um, you know, taking any sort of contact precautions. But um, the advice was, again, varied. It was dependent on different situations. I would speak to people that were just so happy to be back in Australia, back in Victoria, um, uh, because they had been in quarantine for months back overseas, whether they come from India or the Philippines or the US or the UK. So some people were just really pleased to be back and like, oh, put their feet up and enjoy enjoy two weeks in you know four to five to six star hotels. Um, then there was the demographic where it was really challenging. The days three to seven was was so hard, and they really felt, especially the claustrophobia, because outside the door was a secu- was security. So they walked out of the room, they were risking a, f- a fine. Like you know, people that have quarantined at home, there's no security guard sitting at the front door watching you to make sure you're in curfew. So my, my advice was, again, very much to what I've said to the audience before about is there something you could do in that hotel room for the next two weeks? Could it be to watch every single show on Netflix until it comes up on the screen, there are no shows left? Could it be your university student? Could you smash out two weeks of assignments? Um, are, do you, you know, is there something that you wanted to do you know, cre- creatively? Is it a book that you wanted to write? or well, there, Was there a whole list of books that you wanted to read on your Kindle or, or read sitting, um, sitting down? Was, could you do some exercises in the room? You, know, you could do challenges and those sort of and things. And did you see anyone who actually wrote that book or anything like that? Any, any funny little anecdotes there? When I when I say book, there was I did meet a a a, a, um, a PhD candidate that wrote their entire thesis in two <laughs> weeks. Um, so that's and had a pre-existing mental health issues, therefore was on my list of people that I, I called each day. And we just had a very placid, gentle conversation every day, just checking in and and. A lot of people were just happy for that check-in. We're just happy to get that call. Other people, are, you know, they told me to leave them alone and, well, more, more colourfully. <laughs> um, some people were really appreciative to get that 10-minute, 5, 10-minute chat or however long they needed. I, I gave people, um, with time permitting, as much time as they needed. Some people wanted just me to check in on, sim- you know, any sort of COVID-19 symptoms and any sort of mental health risk concerns, risk issues. And other people wanted to chat half an hour and I just gave them what people needed and that's what it's about in in mental health is tailoring it to needs there are two people that experience depression will have two different treatment options someone might take medication someone else might want to talk about it um it's 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 so vast and varied so yeah again the advice was you know the that was probably the most interesting anecdote was was someone wrote their entire thesis in two weeks <laughs> it's like I don't know how many thousand words that was but it was just that was someone who accepted, got to the acceptance stage early. Uh, sometimes it took until the end for someone to accept that this is what it was. It was mm. shit, but, you know, some people just got there early and that was so lucky, you know, really lucky. So Yeah, that's incredible, man. And I think, I guess this idea of acceptance of the situation is, is so important. And, and just having that understanding of what you can and cannot control, that's a, I'm a firm believer of that because I think you should be focusing on the things that you can control. What we can't control at the moment are those are these things called the stage four restrictions. And I was actually reading through this before we came on air today, and it was actually literally just hours ago that Big Dan released them. And it was just so demoralizing. Like I remember reading through those things, and it's like, you know, you can't go outside five kilometer radius of your house. You you can only go outside for an hour, you know, no contact with others. And I guess there was this bizarre moment where I was just reading through the things of what we can and cannot do. And it's the size of the bloody declaration of independence. And it's just like, it's just so demoralizing. And, you know, because we just went into lockdown and came out of lockdown and then back into lockdown. And, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer for these lockdowns. I definitely recommend that we, I definitely, I'm a firm believer that we definitely needed these stage four restrictions, but it's just so frustrating. and It's just so demoralizing. 
It is. It really is. I mean, we went back in March, straight to, we were in stage three in March, and then things had gotten had, had improved. We were at zero cases for a couple of days here in Victoria. Um, and it could have happened anywhere across Australia. Unfortunately, it was here for in, with us in in uh, Victoria and Melbourne, and um, you know we soldier on to stage four. So, you know, I feel I, it might sound like a broken record. I'm repeating myself, but the, my advice again is very much the same: is that I, I personally am looking at this as an opportunity. Things that I have put off and, and wanted to do, oh, that's what I'm doing. And I suppose the other really important thing to take note is that we, again, with, with social media and media, we, we know everything that's happening, especially around the world. And if we look at what's happening around the rest of the world in terms of cases per day and death rate, we're pretty lucky in comparison. So, you know, they've got entire families that are, uh, that are their life is completely altered and decimated by COVID-19. So... I mean, we're seeing it. We're seeing it awfully. What's happened here, especially in aged care facilities in in Victoria, we see what's happening to to nursing to nurses, um, or not just nurses, but healthcare workers. That I mean, without a healthcare a functional healthcare system, it would be uh, it would be beyond chaos. So, again, to anyone in the audience who's who who's having a hard time reconcile where we find ourselves now, which is beyond challenging um, a healthy dose of perspective of other people that are doing it much much tougher than us so th- that's where I, I draw some of my strength from is that always remembering that no matter what I'm going through someone else is probably going through through it a, a lot a lot more and much tougher so mm, yeah um, that might not be cold comfort to some of your audience but pe- perspective is something that always drags me back to the Away from the periphery. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm a big believer in that. And this whole idea of perspective, it's so important. I mean, I guess it's kind of that understanding that there are some people out there who have COVID-19 with some people fighting for their life. And you've got some other people as well who have loved ones who are in that high-risk category. And I guess we can try and find solace in the fact that we are in a position where we can draw strength from having that perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean... The next period of time is going to be one of the more challenging times that we'll face in arguably our lifetimes. But again, I think about the fact that I know about the fact that my, you know, grandparents on both sides, you know, fighting in a world, world war back when they were relatively my age or, or even younger. So again, that's just the healthy dose of perspective that, you know, that was the last time we had a curfew would have been during wartime and we're facing a, a, ideally a a medical war so if we endure that's what humans do we endure so as long as we stay safe and look out look out for each other both physically and mentally then it's all you can ask yourself for at the end of the day so same as this man that's poetry that's beautiful hmm. what can i say it's uh, all that literature in year 10 11 12 that i did was just oh my god <laughs> oh god that's great um but we've gone through a lot of different things today. We've gone through, I guess, your your motivations for getting uh, for getting into the mental health space. We've also gone through, I guess, your tips and tricks for surviving this this stage four restrictions. And I guess your your last one really is about your experience. And that you did have a couple of very different messages here. But was there anything you'd like to add to, I guess, conclude today's conversation? Oh, I, I just I feel. I feel as though you've asked me a lot of questions, so I want to ask one for you. What, what will you spend the next? You know, we'll probably be in this stage four until mid-September. What would you, what will you do? And then the second question is, what is your message to some of your listeners um, at the start of this sort of, you know, this podcast series that you really want them to take away from today's session? Chat. Oh, mate, you're putting it on the spot now, Masashi. Um, oh well, the batter becomes the the pitcher now, does he? That's what I call all rounder. That's what I am. <laughs> um, so, I guess for me, what I'll be doing. Well, firstly, during the week, I'll be working from nine to five. Well, sometimes from nine to nine, depending on how how busy it is. Um, <laughs> but but no, in all seriousness, I guess trying to stay fit as much as I can is definitely up there. And you know, I'll be definitely be making most of the hour that we have, trying to run as much as I can, and you know, getting out and about, and obviously also doing bottled up. And it sort of alludes back to what you were saying earlier. I mean, doing yep. the things that you want to do during this lockdown. 
like I, I can speak on behalf of Sunny and Ujwal that you know mental health was our passion and we sort of we've sort of coincidentally come in at the right time where mental health is at top of mind and I guess that's that's what's been really important for us during this stage and sorry what was your other question yeah what are you what have you taken away from some of the conversation you and I've had today what's been the most I don't know interesting or yeah definitely I, well I think the most interesting part was the one sentence that you made and it was just like people that haven't experienced mental health issues in the past are now feeling it. And that for me is the most important thing. And, and for people out there, there are so many people out there who haven't gone through these issues and, you know, they've gone throughout their life and they've been fine and that's awesome. But now they're feeling a bit down. And I guess the message from this is that it's normal. And just because some people aren't talking about it doesn't mean they aren't feeling the exact same way. And the more we talk about it, number one, the more normal it becomes. And number two, which I think is the, the, the important part, it, it's a form of therapy because you don't feel alone and you feel a part of a community. And that one sentence, I feel that's the inference you get from that one sentence that you made. I think you made it around three, four, three quarters of the way in. And, you know, that definitely stuck with me. Great. And as, as you said about accessing services, and I should have touched on when you said it, you raised a great point about TAFEs and you know, we, I talked more broad, I talked more specifically about schools, but university, you know, those, those of you out there are university or, or, or TAFE students, universities and TAFEs are great grounds to, to, to access support, especially in counselling, psychology, social supports, welfare supports, and even financial supports. Um, a lot of people find that helpful, so um, just wanted to tack on the top of what you'd said. That's really important. Too. That's awesome, mate. Um, yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, so I believe this is our first podcast done. It looks like it's one in the can. Sounds like it's done, it's yeah. A, Ready for yeah, it. it sounds like it. So Masashi, on behalf of myself, Ujwal, and Sunny, uh, and I guess our audience, thank you so much for donating your time today to come on and, I guess, share your story. And it's, it was truly inspirational. And to our audience, please do stay positive. Light is at the end of the tunnel. There is a flattening of the curve, and I'm 100% sure we'll hit the ground running when we get back to normal, and we'll get through this together. So on behalf of Masashi and myself... This is us signing off. Thanks, guys. Stay safe. Take care. Thank you for listening to our very first podcast. We do hope you took some useful points out of it, and we really appreciate you donating your time to listening to Masashi's story. Please do stay tuned for next week's episode as Sunny makes his podcasting debut with a very special guest, Heshan Fernando, founder of his own initiative, The Model Man. As always, please do follow us on our Instagram page at BottledUpOz, and also subscribe to our website, www.bottledup.life. Thanks so much again for listening. And in the meantime, on behalf of Masashi, myself, and the rest of the Bottled Up team, stay safe and stay well. <laughs>